1: May 1st has come and gone, and that means that many seniors have put the college admission process entirely behind you or looking ahead to your first year as a college student in the fall. At College Coach and for other college counselors all over the country, we're just beginning another cycle with a whole new set of students, so buckle up, juniors, uh, you're next. Today's show, we'll touch on a few different subjects that we think will be of interest to you in our set second segment today, we'll talk about the athletic recruitment process, especially as it pertains to students who are aiming at highly selective institutions like those in the Ivy League. And if you're taking on some student loans next fall, or if you know someone who is planning to graduate from college this year, we'd like to help you understand more about income-driven loan repayment plans. Our third segment will be filled with useful, practical tips. First up, though, is a conversation about the college major. It should come as no surprise to parents and students that the college major is a huge topic of conversation in the application process. But why? What is the major? When should you choose your major? What does it even mean to major in something? To answer these questions, I'd like to welcome back to the show my colleague, the very talented, knowledgeable Mr. Zarago Seguera. Welcome back to the show, Z. Thank you, Ian. Very glad to be here. So, Zarek, so you and I have known each other for almost five years now, and I know the name of your partner and your son, and I know where you went to college. I know where you worked before you came to college, Coach, but I actually don't know what you majored in, which seems kind of unusual given the work that we do and the importance that people place on majors. So what did you study in college?
2: I study great books, Ian, and you know what? I don't think I opened up any one of those books. Uh, in relation to my career and my profession, to be quite honest. So oftentimes, you know, you're going to ask people, hey, what did you major in? And discover that whatever it is that they studied in college has absolutely no relation to what they're actually doing as a profession. Um, And, you know, there was actually a study done by the Federal Reserve of New York a, a number of years ago that Uh, found out that only 27% of college grads have a job related to their major.
1: Wow, 27%, so just about a quarter. Now, that's really interesting because, as you know and I know, whenever we talk to families, especially if they're early in this process, they're almost always using the major as a way to drive their college research. But let's start with something that's really simple, but I think a lot of families don't know very well, which is what is a major really? And when we talk about a major from the standpoint of educational expertise, uh, what 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 really is it all about?
2: You know, I oftentimes think of a major as an opportunity for a student to study a particular topic, and I don't think they are. uh, You know, when you're thinking about a major or when you're thinking about that particular uh, topic, I. I, I oftentimes tell students, you know, focus in on perhaps uh, your academic interests more so than, let's say, your professional interests down the road. And the reason I say that is because, you know, the major is, is a way for you to immerse yourself in something, to develop some skill sets um, that are going to help you in your profession down the road. But I don't think necessarily what it is that you're studying, the exact topic, is going to absolutely be used uh, in your profession. Instead, you're using that particular topic to develop communication skills, to develop problem-solving skills, to develop uh, reasoning, to be able to articulate your thoughts. And those are the things, I think, are going to serve as uh, valuable resources for a student, internal resources, when they go off and seek a job. Um, So a major isn't necessarily... Uh, a means or a credential to a career. It's instead an opportunity to immerse yourself in a topic and to develop those other skill sets that are going to be of value, perhaps to a graduate degree down the road, or perhaps to a profession. So I think
1: that that's actually right on, Zaragoza. That that's a great description of what the major is and what it provides. And and like you, you know, I studied philosophy when I was in college, and I don't ever use the the content knowledge of philosophy. You know, when I don't talk about David Hume or, you know, think about what Hobbes thought about political economy. Um, But uh, I do think a little bit about uh, writing and reading closely and asking questions, right? That's part of what I'm doing here on the radio show today is, you know, philosophers fundamentally ask questions. So there is a connection, I think, between what you, you study or maybe the way that you study it and what your professional outcome is, but not, I think, in the way that parents and families often think about it. Why is it, do you think, that the major gets so much attention in the process And what do you think is sort of the appropriate role of the college major to play in the college search process?
2: You know, I think oftentimes families see uh, some of the careers that are out there and they are trying to, uh, you know, make sure that their children, that their students are able to, to thrive after college. And, you know, it is such a big investment. And they want to make sure that, you know, the money that they're putting in is going to serve their children well and that their children are going to be able to stand up on their feet after uh, they get out of college and go off and, and conquer the world. And sometimes they might be projecting particular professions onto this particular process. And thinking, oh, I think, you know, this particular profession is going to serve you well in terms of income down the road. And so perhaps they, they make a literal translation between that particular profession and trying to find out what it is that you can major in that's going to steer you in that profession. And, and to be quite honest, there are very few, uh, you know, professions that need an undergraduate major to serve as credential for that profession. Mm-hmm. You know, I can think, I always bring up these three, engineering, nursing, and architecture. If you want to be an engineer or nurse or an architecture, hey, you probably should have studied that as an undergrad. But for the right. most part, everything else, probably not. Um, you know, there are some caveats to that, but, but for the most part, um, that's that's not necessarily the case. And so... You know, oftentimes I'm, I might steer a family, you know, there are a couple of really great resources out there. One is um, Big Future, you know, and they've got a, a career section, and it, it helps families figure out, you know, these are particular majors that one could consider for X or Y career. And it doesn't mean that you have to major in that, but these particular majors could serve you well in that. So, I oftentimes... You know, tell students, separate the professional interests from the academic interests because they might be, uh, they're not necessarily going to be one and the same.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I was on a call with a student just this week, and, and the student was really, uh, well, he started the conversation by saying, I'm interested in a double major in theater and business marketing. And I said, well, that's really interesting, theater and, and marketing. Why, why have you chosen those two things? And he said, well, I really love theater. And I kind of feel like I have to have a business degree if I'm going to get a job. And I, you know, I said, well, that's really interesting. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. And he was interested in theater because he, well, he loves it. But he also had talked mm-hmm. to family friends who said, you know, that uh, their theater background really was helpful in terms of public speaking and, you know, how you connect with others and, you know, sort of that networking element that comes out of being a very outdoor, going and personable person that that you get really well, uh, you know, sort of from theater. Um, And it was interesting. So we were sort of, as we were talking through it, coming back to this idea that actually the the more valuable thing might be the theater major, and then you can take that and apply it to business later on. You don't necessarily need the business degree in order to, you know, sort of immerse yourself in a a business opportunity after you graduate.
2: And I think it can be... and even, even if you look at people who who found businesses and who start up businesses, you know, oftentimes they might not necessarily have even majored in business. <laughs> you don't, you know, there's no law that says you have to major in business to go into business or to be in the business world. That's right. And you and know, and there's there's some really great artists and singers and actors. Uh, you know, if you think about it, you know. Theater and, and the music industry, those are all industries. Those are all businesses um, to begin with. And so if you're going to make it in that, you, you have to, you know, know how to uh, manage that particular world. And, and oftentimes what you're studying in terms of uh, communication skills, getting up in front of people and, you know, selling ideas, uh, those are things that are going to serve you well. Um, in the business world and it might and not necessarily be uh, you know the absolute content that's going to be uh, disseminated within a business class
1: right and if you're not convinced of that just based on the two of us talking about it back and forth one of the things that you can do is you know go find family friends who have jobs that you respect or that you find interesting and talk to them you know spend 20 minutes saying hey how, what was your pathway how did you get here um, what's the typical pathway for the people that you work with? Um, and unless you're talking to, you know, an engineer or an architect uh, or a nurse, you're probably going to find that the pathways of the coworkers of of any given person are going to be very different in terms of bringing them into that space. So it's kind of fun to, I think, sample things out and, and see sort of, you know, what the different routes are to get to uh, an outcome that you might find to be really desirable. Um, now, you know, that said, Zaragoza, there is there is an element where the major can play a role in the college application process. And, you know, as, as college counselors, I think we often get questions from families about, well, when do I have to know my major in terms of applying to school? And and Mm -hmm. what do I have to do? What's the role of declaring my major when I send an application to a college? Um, What do you typically say uh, to families that are asking that general question?
2: I tell them it's going to vary by school. And, There are going to be some universities where it's not going to be a requisite that you know exactly what it is that you want to study. I I mean, I I worked at a place like MIT and, and Caltech, those two places, and... To be quite honest, we didn't expect a student to know their major coming in, and we didn't base our decisions upon the choice of major you know, that they told us they were hoping for uh, in, in the admissions process. Uh, when you enrolled at a place like uh, an MIT or Caltech, you could major in whatever it is that you wanted to major And, you know, once you were there, I mean, we were vetting you for for the entire school. And I know that's the same for a lot of other places. You know, Stanford, you know, you don't need to declare a major until, you know, spring of the the sophomore year. There are going to be other schools, however, that are going to uh, want you to have a better idea of what it is that you want to study. For instance, if you were uh, applying to, let's say, a Carnegie Mellon, you should probably know the school within the overall university that you're targeting because they're going to be making admission decisions by school rather than, let's say, um, you know, for the overall freshman class. So it's going to vary from place to place. Um, When I was looking at, let's say, Georgia Tech, you know, if I'm, you know, let's say you wanted a major in engineering at Georgia Tech, you don't need to know exactly what engineering, uh, you don't declare what specific uh, form of engineering you're going to pursue at Georgia Tech until the end of your freshman year. So, you know, that's a little bit sooner than other places, but keep in mind it is an engineering degree and, you you know, they want uh, students to get a head start on some of the uh, classes that they're going to need uh, to pursue those particular fields of engineering, but you don't necessarily need to pick that particular field until uh, the end of freshman year.
1: Yeah, you touched on two things there that I I want to follow up on um, with you. The first thing was the mention of the school within the university. That's actually one thing that I talk about as well when I look at, especially at the UCs. now. Um, You know, for Berkeley, for example, you have to apply to the College of Chemistry or the College of Engineering or the College of Letters and Sciences, the three major colleges there. Now, when you're applying to a school at a place like Berkeley or a place like Carnegie Mellon, are you actually choosing a specific major or are you choosing a family of majors or, you know, sort of the opportunity to enroll in a program within the particular school at the university? What's your take on
2: that? It, again, it 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 is going to depend upon the school. There are going to be some places where, yeah, you're you are in pretty much uh, selecting a family uh, of majors, um, and you know they are making their decision on the school within the university as a whole. There are going to be probably some other places in some particular majors where. It, you know, everyone, you know, they're, they're just so popular and they've got numerative restrictions that, you know, they might, uh, you know, want you to know, hey, yeah, we'd like to know if you're hoping for... Uh, computer science or what form of computer science is it going to be computer science within this school or computer science within, uh, you know, the, the computer science within the school of engineering or computer science within the school of arts and sciences. So, you know, it is going mm-hmm. to vary that way. Um, you know, particularly for those uh, really popular majors. I'd say, and, and again, you know, it's, it you really have to uh, take a look at the school and see what their restrictions are for particular majors or particular schools even. And, and some things might be a little bit easier to transfer out of. Um, so, for instance, if I do have a student who's interested in, let's say, in an engineering degree, I, I often tell them, you know, suss it out ahead of time, uh, at least try to the best of your ability. If you are debating between, let's say, physics and or engineering and, let's say, business or engineering and, you know, something else, perhaps you uh, go to the school, start taking those classes, get a feel for it, see if that's what you want to major in. And if you change your mind, it might be a little bit easier to switch out of engineering into something else than the other way around. And as I said, that's going to probably... Uh, be pertinent for those particular majors that we talked about, you know, before, engineering, nursing, architecture, because you oftentimes yeah. have to hit the ground running freshman year with those particular fields.
1: Yeah, I, I think that makes total sense. And and I would also say that, you know, Zaragoza's answer, it depends. That's a very common answer in college admission. But this is, I think, one of those areas where you can reach out to a college or university and, and ask them, do I need to apply by major or is major a consideration in the process? And they'll probably give you an answer, at least one that gives you an idea whether they fall into a category where major is relevant in their process or not relevant in their process. Um, now, Z, we've spent a lot of time talking about the major and, you know, what role it might play in, in future outcomes. We, we've got a little bit of time left, about a minute, uh, maybe two. Um If using a major isn't the best way to think about researching colleges, uh, what's the best way to sort of dial into the academic quality of the institution if you're not going to let the major guide you?
2: I oftentimes tell students to take a look at the overall core curriculum or distribution requirements. Um, You know, there are going to be some schools that are going to require that a student take classes in particular core areas or particular topics. And find out if that's something that meshes with your particular personality, with your particular goals, if those are the kinds of classes that you're hoping to take. Because whether or not you choose this major or that major, you're still going to have to take those core classes. For the most part. Uh, there are going to be other schools where, hey, they're not going to be so particular with that, and, and they're going to let you take uh, classes in a variety of different things of your choosing. So if that is more to your liking, perhaps seek out schools like that. Um, if you're absolutely unsure, you know, make sure that you... you, you no. <laughs> seek out some schools that uh, offer a variety of different courses of study. You know, so that way you can test things out And you can, uh, you know, sample one particular course of study, sample another course of study, and then uh, make a, a decision perhaps at the end of your freshman year or your sophomore year. So, you know, you might not necessarily want to limit yourself to a school that's not offering as many majors as uh, you would like um, particularly if, if you're you know undefined in that realm you know definitely uh, seek out some places that are going to give you some options and choices
1: yeah i think that that's that's terrific advice and there's a lot of great stuff here we could keep going on for quite a bit of time i know uh but i want to thank you for coming on the show and, and there's a lot of really helpful information and, and the start of a great conversation so thank you very much saragossa you're welcome. My pleasure. All right, y'all. Don't 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 uh, go away. When, you, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about athletic recruitment and the Ivy League. So stick around.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
3: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Before we
1: introduce our next guest, I'd like to take a moment for a school spotlight. This is always one of my favorite parts of the program because because I get to learn a little bit about a school as well. And I, I hope that you all have been enjoying it as well. So today we're going to talk about the College of Charleston in beautiful South Carolina. Over the past several years, approximately $80 million have poured into the College of Charleston's beautiful and historic campus. Since 2007, 14 buildings on campus have either been significantly renovated or completely built from the ground up, including a center for the arts, an athletics complex, and two residence halls. And here's great news for science students. This fall, a major overhaul of the readout. Holling Science Center will be completed, not only expanding classroom and laboratory space, but also creating a rooftop astronomy lab. That's pretty cool. Nearly 10,000 undergraduates are enrolled at this public university, of whom almost 65% are female and approximately one-third come from out of state. This college offers 60 majors, including unique programs in computing and the arts and historic preservation and community planning to help incoming students acclimate to college life all freshmen are required to take a first year seminar or learning community the latter of which links two interdisciplinary courses around a common theme this past fall students could discover psychological and literary analysis of harry potter a learning community course that combined english and psychology or from russia with code which joined russian and computer science fun fact college charleston is one of only 55 schools in the country to offer division one ncaa women's beach volleyball now beach volleyball is an awesome sport it's one that i saw often when i was biking past the sand courts at stanford as a grad student but it's not likely to be a big sport up in the northeast where my next guest was a very talented college athlete back in her day amy alexander fresh out of the water in the gulf coast is here to talk to us about athletic recruitment at the ivies welcome amy
4: Thank you so much, Ian, for having me.
1: Of course. Now, athletic recruitment is one of those areas we touch upon only occasionally in our work with our students, but when it's important for a particular student, it's really important for that student because it's a big driver in their process. So I'd like to start with just sort of a big picture. How does being a college athlete change the college application timeline for
4: a student? That's a great question, and um, it's a sad uh, fact. But right now, it, it changes it dramatically, and it starts much, much earlier. You and I both know that when we're counseling students in high school, we, we like to tell them to move into the process a little slowly and just get their feet wet, visit a college yeah. or two when they're going on vacation and things like that. Unfortunately, and really dive in like their junior year, unfortunately, athletes, if they wait till then, they've missed the boat. Um, some sports more than others. Um sports that, like soccer, lacrosse, we have seen kids uh, commit to schools as early as ninth or beginning of tenth grade.
3: Sign, wow.
4: uh, what, And we'll talk about Ivys. you know, and get more specific with Ivys in a little bit, but you'll get what's called a likely letter or a verbal commitment from another school. And you're signing up pretty early. And I do have a friend whose daughter was a fantastic soccer player. She signed up with UNC Chapel Hill in the beginning of her sophomore year. And the end of her sophomore year, she tore <laughs> her ACL, and she was in surgery. So there was a question whether or not she was going to be pulled and whether or not her scholarship was go- was going to go through, because it's not official until you get that admissions acceptance from the admissions office, the coach can't say. So it was a little dicey. She did have a surgery, she recovered, and she played very well in her junior year. So she is there now and doing wonderfully. But there's a lot of factors that you have to think about. So it starts early. Uh, Sometimes you do have to commit early. It's a huge part of the process. You want to start doing your research. You want to know about the kind of place you want to be involved in. You want to engage with your local high school coach, maybe your private team coach or trainer and ask them questions so that you are making the right decision for you because as you and I both know, a lot of sports, you're not going to go on to become a professional player. Actually, out of college athletes, I think about 1% actually go on to then do varsity D1 at colleges. So it's a very, very small number that actually get to play sports at a varsity level, but then to go on to be professional or broadcaster or something to do with it is very small. So you want to think about the bigger picture, and I always encourage that with my students at any stage of the process.
0: Yeah, that
1: makes a ton of sense. I think I feel like part of this you know, skill level, um, th- to some degree, when you know, you know, like when you know you're good enough, but there may be some questions that families have out there of, you know, what's my child's skill level and, and you know, how do I get a, a look from a D1 coach or a D3 coach? Um, so how do you figure this out? What are some of the resources that you can use uh, from home, uh, people you can talk to to kind of figure out whether... College athletics is even going to be in the cards for a student, especially D1 college athletics.
4: Mm-hmm. That's, that's also uh, an important area to think about. You know, we get calls every day from families and we talk to them and they say, Oh, my son is. The best soccer player at his program, or he's going to be captain. He's so wonderful. You know, he wants to play, this is ninth or tenth grade, he wants to play college sports. He wants to be on a varsity team. And when I start diving in and asking him questions, well, what does his high school coach say? Or, you know, have college coaches noticed him? Have You know, he'd done anything in the summers or special camps or programs. And the answer is no, no, no. And then I start realizing, well, he's probably not. He might be able to play D3, but he's not a D1 athlete. So, you know, like you said earlier, you know, you do know. Now, swimming, which is what I did in college, um, track, other sports that are time-based, you know. You know, um, you often know by sophomore year where you fall. You can, there are websites you can look up and see where will I be on a college team right now. Oh, I'm number six, 200 meter freestyle. You know, you know. Now the thing with swimming and track, your body changes, you grow, you get stronger, you do more weight training as you get older. So colleges do look, some of these sports will continue to look through junior year if someone's and they do really well, and they often leave a place or two, but for the most part, those soccer players, lacrosse players, field hockey, volleyball, like you said, they know. Coaches go to uh, they go and they scout, or often the coach themselves don't, some do for some high schools and some programs, but the more competitive ones, but they often have assistants or they have scouts for them and they go out and they go to high school basketball games, soccer tournaments, um, you know, an ice hockey weekend tournament. They have summer camps at their colleges. They have regional summer camps and programs. Um, They have high school coach connections, private coach connections, um, so all of these places help students know whether or not they're realistic, and they do know by ninth or 10th grade whether they're on that trajectory. So thank you. Um, and it's very, very important for students and families to be proactive. Every now and then, someone is under the radar. So I tell students contact the coach, let them know, send them a resume, Um, let them know who you are, give them an idea of your stats or how well you're playing, and just get them on your radar. Coaches will follow up. Believe me, they don't drop someone they're interested in. They will follow up and they will be very assertive with kids they're interested in. Um, You know, now, if if you want to take it to kind of the Ivy level, um, there's a whole big component that's extremely important in the IV recruitment of athletes. And the biggest one is Academics come first. Academics, first and foremost, always comes first in athletic recruitment. So it's a different process than if you're looking at a Division I school, um, you know, that's outside of the Ivy League, if you will. The big big, uh, difference is, you know, outside schools, University of Georgia, Clemson, you know, uh, Texas, they give athletic scholarships. So they're their top athletes. They are vying with other schools to give them money, whether it's so a full athletic scholarship, partial. Sometimes it's given each year, depending on if there's injury or level of play or where they want you. At the Ivies, there are no athletic scholarships at all. It's based on financial need only. So if you, it does help in the root in the admissions process. So if you're recruited, coaches are given certain numbers. So they're given. Um, you know, a list, if you will. And like when I worked at the Yale University Admissions Office, I handled swimming, lacrosse, and women's soccer. And each program was given a list. So, of course, men's lacrosse and women's soccer were giving many more uh, student-athletes on their list than swimming, for example. So, swimming was was given eight, and uh, women's soccer was given 20. Now, do they admit all 20 or all eight? No. But that's their wish list, if you will. Now, the other important thing about Ivy's is there's something called the Academic Index. It's a combination of grades, test scores. Um, so it's the ACT or SAT, SAT2s plus rank and GPA. So on their team, the whole team, they must meet a certain academic index. It's a compilation of all of those, you know, um, individual items. And so maybe they have a really strong number one tennis player but his academic index is about 194. They have to be over 200. So then maybe they have someone coming in whose academic index is 220. Well, then it'll balance out. So the Ivies have to go at it in a very different way. So when you're approaching coaches at an Ivy school, you want to do it early, you want to send the resume, but you want academic criteria on that resume. That's just as important, if not more so than the athletic um, material. On, on If they see someone who's strong in testing and a GPA and a rigorous curriculum, they then, their eyes perk up because then if you're also a stellar athlete, they really have a lot of clout to then go in and push you at the admissions office.
1: So you're mentioning something about the athletic uh, timeline being earlier, and then the academics playing a big role. And when we talk about, you know, I always tell families, they say, I want my kid to go to an Ivy League school. And I say, well, you know, the only thing that Ivy's really have in common is that they're in part of the same athletic conference. Um, That's it, Matters. It matters when you're an athlete, right? Because that's that's really what you're looking at is the athletic conference. But with respect to this academic index, you're both you're both saying that you want to start early with ninth and tenth grade. But there are also academic metrics like test scores that we usually don't recommend students take until eleventh grade, often spring of eleventh grade. So if you're a younger student, how do you think about the timeline for testing um, and the role of your early grades when you're thinking about being competitive for those schools? Uh, sports programs?
4: That's a great question. And I do tell my student-athletes who are, and they don't always end up at the Ivy, you know, maybe that's one, maybe one or two schools they're shooting for and they might not end up there, but if in ninth or 10th grade I get them early and they say that's going to be in my radar, I do tell them that they have to start thinking about testing earlier because it does come into play. Now, again, students are accepted to University of Pennsylvania or Dartmouth in their, you know. all of senior year through early admission or early de- early action or early decision and through regular decision. So some of those students do wait until kind of the more typical timeline, if you will, in taking the SAT or ACT winter or spring of junior year. But the students who want an early read, the cool thing about Ivys is they will, um, if you're a really strong student, you have uh, all your ducks in a row and a coach is really interested in you. They want to see that you've taken, and it's great, now the SAT and ACT offer summer. The SAT, you could take August, you know, before junior year. And they want to then be able to go early, Junior year, the coach to the admissions office and say, "I have a student. They've taken the SAT. This is where they are. These are their grades. These are ninth and tenth grades. This is their course load. They're taking three APs or four APs or a couple honors courses. Mm-hmm. They're taking a rigorous program. This is where they are. They can then offer a likely letter, which is really it's a verbal commitment. It is a piece of paper, but it's not a binding admissions decision. If there's any kind of um, you know disciplinary behavior or." drastic drop in grades, all of a sudden Cs and Ds, um, they can they can pull. But really, unless those things happen, that likely letter does go through and becomes an admissions decision. So do I tell kids to take the SAT or ACT in 10th grade? Typically, no, because I do think you will do better the more material, the more time you have. But if some kids do have to take it, if that is going to be an issue for them, I will suggest it that August before junior year or the, the fall of junior year. Gotcha.
1: So leveraging some of those later summer dates can often be a good idea. Now, you mentioned yeah. the concept of the likely letter. And, uh, you know, I have a student who's got um, an offer of verbal commitment from a school already. She's a junior. And, and there are some students out there that have gotten some likely letters as well. What does that mean for you? Especially when you're looking at a highly selective school like the Ivies, what does that mean in terms of how your fall process should play out? Do you apply to the same number of schools as any other student? Do you have a backup option? What sort of is the strategy when you've got that likely letter already in hand?
4: What I typically tell students who have the likely, and they chose that school, and the school chose them, and they've made this verbal commitment, and the student does, the student chose uh, Columbia, the student wants Columbia, the coach from Columbia wants the student. So I suggest you apply early decision or if they have a restricted early action or an early action, depending what their policy is. But you do. The coaches will push you, too, um, sometimes a little too hard. Um, but they will push you to apply in, in, under their early program, which I do think is a sensible thing to do uh, for and ethical for both parties because you are committing to each other. You're making this. So you apply early, and then it usually does go through, and you're done. Um, you always have. Everyone, I always recommend that you have a few more schools just in case there's an injury, just in case that there's a disciplinary action that comes up. So I always tell students, my regular, just non-athletes, have a balance list. Have your two or three challenges, your two to four targets, your two or three no-problem schools, safer schools that you know you're going to get into. And then you have that. You have to start doing the applications. If you've already written a number of essays for an Ivy League, you'll be able to probably reuse and recycle a lot. You don't have to do a lot of work, but if you if you need to, it's there for you. So that's what I usually recommend. Now, if there's a financial piece, so remember the Ivy League does not give athletic scholarships. So if you're accepting a likely, um, and you've accepted it, you've told the coach, the coach wants you, but your family has a financial need, and you're not sure if that need will be met, That is the only way you could ever get out of an early action or early decision if it really does not come through. But, you know, maybe you're choosing a school that has early action. It's not binding. You do apply to a few other schools because finances are going to be an issue for your family. So that would be the only thing you'd have to really think about in terms of the whole picture.
1: All right. Well, that's, I mean, that's terrific. And I think that that's really helpful for families. And, you know, this does, it fits a small percentage of, of our yeah. listeners. But again, it's a really important topic. If, if it's something that your uh, child is considering, make sure you get on things really early. And Amy, thanks a lot for coming in today to, to talk us through some of that stuff. Do you have a, a swim plan for later this afternoon?
4: Um, I actually swam, um... About two and a half miles this morning at 5:30 a.m. So.
1: Okay. So, <laughs> once in the pool, always in the pool. Uh, exactly. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Amy, for coming on the show. It's great to have you.
4: You're so welcome. Have a great day.
1: All right, folks. When we come back, we're going to talk about student loan repayment plan options. So don't go away.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
3: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation.
1: Welcome back to the show, folks. Uh, I want to thank you for being here for, for another week. Um, and I want to remind you that if you ever have any questions that you want to send along to us that are related to admissions or financial aid, you can send those to us at gettinginvoiceofamerica@gmail.com. Uh, gmail.com. We'll go ahead and take those questions, collate them, and then answer them in future shows. So don't be shy if there's information that you want to have answers to. We're glad to give those answers to you in a future program. I also want to put in a big plug for our blog. We put topics on there uh, every single day, it feels like. Um, It's pretty incredible the Mm -hmm. amount of content that is shared on that blog, including our school spotlights. So the ones that I read here on the air when I host um, are just a a small, small fraction of the total number of school spotlights that we have available for you. So uh, go ahead and look at that. It's at blog getintocollege.com and you'll find a lot of great stuff in the archives and joining us today uh, for our next segment on today's show is Shannon Vasconcelos who actually uh, runs our blog and does a fantastic job with it and we're going to talk a little bit about financial aid today welcome to the show Shannon
5: thank you so much Ian happy to be here
1: of course. So now we're talking about income driven repayment plans. And of course, I'm very much out of my depth whenever we talk about anything that's <laughs> financially related. One of the questions that I had just as I was looking at this was, does an income driven repayment plan, is that something that you decide you're going to have when you first sign up for the loan? Is it Or is it something that you decide you're going to do when you start to think about repaying the loan?
5: You don't have to decide up front, thank goodness, because most people have no clue at that point what their income is going to look like after graduation. So you do sign up after you borrow the loan. Your first um, opportunity to sign up for a particular repayment plan comes when you undertake your exit counseling, which every federal student loan borrower has to do uh, before they graduate school. It's sort of a little online tutorial um, where they explain all your kind of repayment plan options and you can select one, uh, but you can also actually change your repayment plan at any time. So if you start off on one repayment plan, it doesn't work for you. You contact your loan servicer. You can always select another one you know, a year into repayment, seven years into repayment at any point you can actually switch.
1: That's terrific. So, so let's talk about just the basics. What are some student loan repayment plan options? What are, what are, uh, what's available to me if I'm, if I'm looking to pay back the money I borrowed? Yeah. And it's, it's,
5: different than most loans that you borrow where you don't really tend to have options. You borrow a mortgage, you know, maybe you can choose from a 15-year mortgage or a 30-year mortgage, but that's it. Student loans actually have a, a number of repayment plan options, starting with the standard plan, which is the default plan. If you don't select otherwise, you have 10 years to pay the loans back. Uh, your loan is amortized, so you pay the exact same amount uh, every month for 10 years. If you borrowed. Um, A lot of student loans, and now they actually define that as over $30,000 in debt. You can choose an extended repayment plan where you still pay the same amount every month, but now it's stretched out over 25 years instead of 10, so those monthly payments will be lower. There's something called a graduated repayment plan where your payments start out pretty low, and then they gradually rise over the course of your 10 years or 25 years of repayment um, under the theory that, you know, most people, when they're just starting out, will have lower income and it will gradually rise over the year. So that's kind of the theory behind a graduated repayment plan. And then there are the income-driven repayment plans. And just to make things extra confusing, there are actually four different income-driven repayment plans that all amount to kind of paying slightly different percentages of your income um the, the theory behind all of them is, you know, there are ways to allow folks that have low income compared to the amount of their debt to actually successfully achieve um, student loan repayment. So these folks that may otherwise default on their loans because they don't have the income to support, you know, say the standard repayment plan um, can pay a percentage of their income rather than kind of a standardized amount. Um, there's one called the income contingent plan where you pay 20% of your discretionary income, um, every month for up to 25 years. And if you still have a balance remaining after 25 years, the remaining balance is forgiven. That was the first income driven plan. Then a number of years later, they added one called income based repayment, where depending on when you borrowed your loans, you pay either 10 or 15% of your discretionary income, again, up to 25 years. Um then they made a new one. Each time they made a new one, they made it better, which is nice for borrowers. Um, but they didn't get rid of the old one, so to make it a little bit confusing. Um the next one they added was pay as you earn. That was the best one that they created where you only pay 10% of your discretionary income for up to 20 years before the loan is forgiven. Um, That one was only made available to new borrowers, so folks with old loans couldn't take advantage of it. Uh, But then the government decided that was... um, a good deal. They didn't want to restrict it to just new borrowers, so they created the last income-driven repayment plan called Revised Pay As You Earn, where it's the same kind of deal where you pay 10% of your discretionary income for up to 20 years if you just have undergraduate loan, 25 years if you have graduate school loans, but it now applies to all direct loan borrowers, not just new borrowers. So those are kind of the four choices in terms of income-driven repayment plans. Um, One nice thing is when you apply for income-driven repayment, you actually uh, can check a box that says, give me whichever income-driven plan Give me the lowest monthly payment. So you don't actually, oh, all of those options are very confusing to you. And I think they would be to just about anybody. You can just check a box and give me the one that's going to give me the lowest payment. You don't have to understand the intricacies and the eligibility requirements for all these different plans.
1: So, what if you did want to work on understanding some of the intricacies to choose this plan? I mean, it's nice to think about a lower monthly payment, but I imagine that comes with uh, some strings attached as well. How do you actually go through the process yeah. of choosing one of these if you're not uh, an expert in financial aid at college, coach?
5: <laughs> right. Um, the I would say a couple good websites to refer you to. One is called StudentAid.gov. That website describes all the different repayment plans in detail, describes who qualifies for them, because depending on the kind of loan you have and when you borrowed it, you may or may not qualify for one or the other. Um, the other good website to check out is called studentloans.gov. And in that, on that website, if you have federal student loans, you can actually log in, and it has a record of all of your federal student loans. So you can, on that website, you can actually request the income-driven repayment. It has all your actual loan info. So you can experiment with a loan repayment calculator, and it will calculate for you what your monthly payments would be under each of these, the different plans that you're eligible for, as well as what your total payments would be over time. So using that uh, repayment estimator on studentloans.gov is really the best way to figure out which payment plan is going to be best for you.
1: For you. That's, yeah, that's terrific. So definitely get out there and look at those resources. Just like when you were back, you know, looking at colleges and using those net price calculators, uh, mm-hmm. these tools exist, and they're very, very helpful. Um, now, yeah. what about advantages and disadvantages of income-driven repayment? What, what are some things that, you know, I might want to think about as I'm considering this as a possible option?
5: Yeah, so the big advantage and why people utilize income-driven repayment is to get a lower monthly payments. So, if your income is low compared to your um, outstanding loan balance, the income-driven repayment plans are going to get you the lowest monthly payments. And in fact, you do have to document your income on an annual basis, so your um, monthly payment amount can change each year if you have changes in income. Um, One nice thing for uh, recent graduates, or folks listening might be soon-to-be graduates, It's based on your last year's income. So for you know recent grads who maybe their last year's income was zero or you know a very low amount, they just had a little you know summer job, something like that. Your monthly payments under an income-driven plan can actually be zero dollars, and those zero-dollar payments do count towards like the twenty years of repayment that that you have to um, sort of accomplish to to get. The remaining balance forgiven, zero dollar payments count. Um, So the big advantage is getting lower monthly payments. If you can't afford payments under the standard 10-year plan, income-driven repayment can get your payments much lower than that. Um, The other big advantage is that it does open up the possibility of loan forgiveness. Again, after it's automatic on an if your if your income stays low, really for 20-25 years under one of these plans, the remaining balance is automatically forgiven. These plans work particularly well for public service workers. There is a, an additional public service loan forgiveness plan that actually offers repayment after 10 years uh, of making 10 years of payments under one of these income-dependent plans. If you work in public service, which is for a nonprofit agency, Uh, or government agency, the remaining balance is forgiven. So it works particularly well for for public service workers um, if you've got relatively low income compared to to your loan balance.
1: So those are I mean there seem like a lot of good reasons to take advantage of this is I like like the idea yeah. of a zero dollar payment. Yeah. Pretty, who doesn't? <laughs> uh, uh it probably means in that case that you've got a very low income. So it's not it's not all roses. But uh, yeah. what are the disadvantages of an income driven repayment plan? I mean what why why not do something like this?
5: Yeah, so the big disadvantage is for folks who don't qualify for that public service loan forgiveness. But for those folks, it's probably a win win. Um, you're going to end up better if, again, if your income is low enough to qualify for, for one of these plans. If you have a high income, you, you either, depending on the plan, you either don't qualify for the plan at all. Or you're paying higher than your standard monthly payment, which you probably don't want to do. But for most folks doing income driven repayment, they do it because their income is low. Uh, but if you don't end up qualifying for public service loan forgiveness, you actually end up paying sometimes much more over time compared to, you know, anytime you stretch out payment, you're gonna accrue more interest. Um, so, I, I ran kind of a scenario where uh, I'm assuming a kid out of school who's borrowed the, the average amount for an undergraduate student, which is just under $30,000, um, if that was you, if you borrowed $30,000 and maybe you're only making $30,000 a year right out of school, what your monthly payment would be on like a pay-as-you-earn plan, about $100 a month. Uh, on the standard plan, it would be about $300 a month. So again, nice, I'd much rather only pay 100 than 300 But if I paid on the standard plan, my loan would be paid off after 10 years, and I would have paid in total about $39,000 on that $30,000 of debt. So I would have accrued $9,000 in interest. But if I put paid on an income-driven plan, and I only paid uh, starting out at $100 a month and kind of assuming my salary just went up with inflation, uh, even though I have lower monthly payments, I would still be paying that loan off 20 years down the line. I'd actually end up get a, getting a little bit of the loan forgiven, but even though I got some forgiveness, I still would, would have paid $51,000 instead of $39,000. I would have mm. doubled the amount of interest I paid. So that is the big disadvantage of income-driven repayment. If you're paying lower than the standard payment, you're going to be paying longer, you're going to accrue more interest. That's the big downside. So I think it can work well for people, again, maybe just starting out um, who can't afford those monthly payments to start, but then maybe get off of the income-driven repayment. You know, a few years down the line when you're making more income, you can afford to pay off the loan more quickly or, again, people who, you know, have a job loss, something like that. So there's a limited amount of time or maybe one of these income-driven plans is helpful. Um, You know, it's useful to have the option, but in the long run, uh, for most people, it's going to cost you, again, unless you qualify for that public service forgiveness.
1: Gotcha. That, that all makes sense. And, and that takes us just up to the edge of the time that we have for today. Can you, for me, can you repeat the two uh, websites that you had recommended for, for families to go to?
5: Yes. Studentaid.gov um, lists, describes all the different repayment plans, what the requirements are, and then studentloans.gov is where you can log in gives you all your repayment info. It has great calculators where you can really make an informed decision about what payment plan is going to be best for you. And again, you can change at any time. So don't worry about being locked into the choice you make, you know, right at graduation. If you find out down the line that doesn't work for you, you can always change.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Shannon. appreciate it. Very, very welcome. Uh, Folks, we want to thank you once again for joining us here on Getting In this week and every week, and I hope that your spring semester comes to a successful conclusion. You find yourself poised to take full advantage of everything this summer has to offer. On next week's show, we'll talk about the pluses and minuses of homeschooling, how to finish the year strong after making your deposit at your new college, and we'll provide an update on the New York State Excelsior program. Join us for all the excitement, whether in your home, at the gym, in the yard, or on your commute. Podcasts can be listened to everywhere. In the meantime, drive safely, and we'll